This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this series, Written in Blood, I detail cases of writers or authors who have committed crimes. This time, I'll tell you about two writers who both became wife killers and then hid their crimes from the public. First up, a successful comedy and television writer seems to have it all. A successful career, a loving wife, a beautiful home, and a new baby. But when his career takes a turn for the worse, things at home begin to deteriorate. When his crime is discovered, it would shock his friends, family, and the public. This is the case of J.J. Paulson. John James Paulson was born on November 23, 1959. When his mother became pregnant, she was just 15 years old and unmarried. Paulson's parents tried to make things work for a while, but eventually divorced. The family often didn't have enough food to eat and had to make do with whatever they'd sometimes receive from charity food banks. Paulson once shared a memory with a colleague of having only a bag of radishes to eat. He began to write poetry in high school and was soon recognized by his teachers as a gifted writer and poet. Paulson enrolled in Columbia University on a scholarship. He was a highly regarded poet who was invited to give readings in some of Manhattan's cultural hotspots. While at Columbia, Paulson began dating a fellow student, Rachel Sweet. Rachel was a pop and country singer who'd already made a name for herself in show business. In 1989, she was offered her own sketch variety show on HBO's new Comedy Channel, the precursor to Comedy Central. The show was called The Sweet Life, and Rachel's writer boyfriend, Paulson, began sitting in on writers' meetings. He would sometimes contribute and throw out ideas for the sketches. Rachel left the show after the first season to take a job at Late Night with David Letterman, and Paulson was offered a job as writer working alongside young Jon Stewart. He couldn't believe he was going to be paid to, quote, joke around. But the once serious poet took the job as a comedy writer. The show was canceled that same year, but J.J. Paulson got work writing for The Carol Burnett Show and other television series before being hired on the new sketch comedy show In Living Color. There he worked alongside some of the fastest-rising young comics in Hollywood, including Jim Carrey, Marlon Wayans, and Jamie Foxx. In 1991, he was nominated along with the rest of the writing team for an Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Variety or Music Program. Paulson continued to be a sought-after writer, as well as a producer for shows such as Margaret Cho's All-American Girl, Hope and Gloria, Grace Under Fire, and Cosby, which was Bill Cosby's return to television after the wildly successful The Cosby Show. By this time, Paulson and Rachel Sweet had long since gone their separate ways, and Paulson became known as a bit of a ladies' man. He always had a beautiful girl on his arm. And why not? He was young, successful, rich, and single. By 1995, he had purchased a four-bedroom house in Sherman Oaks, California, to be close to Hollywood projects, and was renting an apartment in an exclusive high-rise apartment building in Manhattan. Life was good for J.J. Paulson. In 2000, Paulson went on a double date with his then-girlfriend, Stephanie Swanson. 
Her friend and roommate, Leanne Serrano, was the other half of the second couple. Leanne was a dark-haired beauty who had been a performer since she was a child. Leanne Carmel Serrano was born on November 17, 1967, in Birmingham, Alabama. Her father, Ralph Serrano, was a popular stage entertainer performing along with his siblings. The Serrano brothers would sing, dance, and do impersonations in nightclubs and later on children's television shows. He would study dance and then become a dance instructor in New York. Leanne had three sisters, and they were all gifted dancers. Leanne loved to sing, dance, and perform comedy routines. When she was 12, the family moved to Carmel, Indiana. She began performing in local theater and school productions. She was a pretty girl with long dark hair and eyes, and she could sing and had an electric stage presence. She got the lead in Bye Bye Birdie at Carmel High School and was crowned homecoming queen. She was talented and vivacious, and everyone expected that Leanne Serrano would go far in show business. She attended Indiana University, but her friends and family were surprised that she didn't major in performing arts, but instead studied for a degree in fashion design. Perhaps she didn't think she could earn a living acting and singing, and decided to focus on a career with a guaranteed paycheck. In any case, after high school, Leanne moved to Atlanta, Georgia, to take a job as a manager for Macy's department store. But the acting bug must have still been in her system because within a year, she returned to Indiana and immersed herself in local theater. She also married a childhood friend named Gary Blanton. Blanton owned a construction business, and when Leanne wasn't at rehearsals or acting in plays, she put her business skills to use, keeping the books for the construction firm. After about four years, Leanne wanted to move beyond local theater and take a shot at making it on Broadway. However, her husband wasn't keen on folding up his business and all he had worked for to follow her to New York. In 1994, Leanne and Gary were divorced. Some of Leanne's friends would say that if she had one fault, it was that she jumped into relationships too quickly. Soon after her divorce, Leanne began dating a fellow actor named Scott Beck. She and Beck married less than a year after her divorce. They had a common goal of becoming serious actors and decided to move to New York together. Leanne began earning roles in a few New York productions, including Radio City Music Hall's Christmas show. She was then cast to appear in the touring company of Jesus Christ Superstar and went on the road. Her husband Scott was also touring with another show, and they grew apart. In 1998, they divorced. Leanne began sharing an apartment with Stephanie Swanson. J.J. Paulson was in New York working on Cosby when he began dating Stephanie. Stephanie asked him a few times to invite a colleague along to double date with her recently divorced friend Leanne. Leanne was living in Queens and working as a server for a catering company in between jobs. She lived on a very small budget while she aspired to make her acting dream a reality. Life was sometimes hard, and these nights out with Stephanie being wined and dined by her rich boyfriend and his writer friends was fun. Months later, after Stephanie and JJ had stopped dating, Leanne continued to think of Paulson. She asked her friend if she wouldn't mind if she called him to ask him out. Stephanie said she didn't mind at all. In 2000, Leanne and JJ began dating. Within a year, Leanne moved to Los Angeles to live with Paulson. But by 2001, J.J. Paulson's star was already beginning to wane. 
His job as co-executive producer of Cosby ended when the show was canceled in 2000. No other producer jobs were forthcoming, and he couldn't even find writing work since the networks had taken to focusing on the cheaply produced and highly popular reality television shows, which didn't require a staff of writers. Paulson's IMDb profile shows no writer or producer credits from 2000 to 2002. Finally, in 2003, he gained a credit as a writer on the short-lived Orlando Jones show. Leanne was living in Paulson's Sherman Oaks home, staying home to keep house while her husband tried to find work. On the outside, everything looked great. Paulson was charming and funny, and his wife was beautiful, sweet, and funny as well. They made a great couple. In 2003, J.J. and Leanne married. But Leanne didn't know anyone in Los Angeles, and while she made friends easily, she was mostly confined to the home. Even the few friends she had, who'd also moved to Los Angeles to pursue acting careers, said they didn't see her much. It seemed that her and J.J. mostly stayed home and didn't really socialize. After a time, her friends stopped hearing from her entirely. She wasn't even returning emails. They just figured she was immersing herself in her new marriage and thought nothing of it. Then in 2004, Leanne announced to her family that she and J.J. were moving to Indiana. Perhaps this was as a result of J.J.'s income drying up, a situation not helped by the fact that Los Angeles was an expensive place to live. They could buy a home much more affordably in Indiana. Or maybe Leanne was lonely and wanted to be near family. Certainly, Paulson couldn't expect to get much television writing or producing work while living in Indiana. He told friends that he was working on a book, and perhaps he was. But moving to Indiana wasn't going to change his expensive lifestyle. The first thing the couple did was purchase a $675,000, 6,600-square-foot house in the exclusive neighborhood of Delaware Trace in Carmel, Indiana. Paulson drove a new Jaguar, and they threw a catered housewarming party for friends and family. It was obvious that the couple had spared no expense in their new home. The furnishings were expensive, and their opulent lifestyle was unlike anything the neighbors had seen before. But then again, Hollywood had never come to Carmel before. They figured J.J. must be doing very well for himself. Leanne at first seemed happy. She was near her parents, sisters, and their children. J.J. wasn't as outgoing and chatty as he'd once been. Neighbors would later report that he was pleasant, but not overly friendly, and they had few interactions with him, especially as the months passed. In the spring of 2005, Leanne was pregnant. Their son Christopher was born in December. But cracks began to form in their marriage. At first, no one knew what was happening in the Paulson home on Stag Hill Drive. But in early 2006, the bill collectors began to call. The Paulsons were sued for non-payment of the mortgage in the amount of $618,000. They also owed over $50,000 in other debts. Then in May, the police were called out to the Paulson home. On May 3rd, Leanne Paulson called 911 to report an assault by her husband. When police arrived at 13294 Stag Hill Drive, Leanne had a broken nose, black eyes, and bruising on her body. Paulson was found to have scratches on his face, neck, and chest. Leanne reported that he'd hit her, knocked her to the ground, and then sat on top of her, pinning her down. She'd scratched at him to get him off of her. 
J.J. Paulson told police that they had fought and it had gotten physical. He said that Leanne, suffering from postpartum depression, had begun drinking, which is what they were fighting about. Leanne told officers that they had money problems and that her husband was spending money they didn't have, which caused them to fight. Paulson was arrested for domestic battery, but was released on bond. He was placed into a pretrial diversion program. Leanne's family would later say that they'd seen evidence of domestic violence before this arrest. A few months earlier, when she was still pregnant, Leanne arrived at a relative's home wearing blood-stained clothing. She said that J.J. had hit her. A friend in California would recall that soon after Leanne moved in with J.J., he noticed that she was limping and had bruises on the insides of both arms. When he asked her what had happened, she said that she tripped on the treadmill and hit her arms and hip on the handlebars. He didn't think anything more of it, but later would wonder if the abuse didn't predate their move to Indiana. Many people who experience intimate partner violence fail to report it to anyone at first. Often, they are embarrassed or think it's just a one-time thing or the result of some stressor. Leanne, if she had been abused early in her relationship, may have had this hope. She had just moved across country, away from all her family and friends, to be with this man she loved. Maybe she thought she could change him, or make him happy, and the abuse would stop. It's a common hope. But domestic violence often escalates over time, and it's possible that this is what Leanne experienced. Neighbors in Carmel, Indiana, later reported that they saw Leanne and J.J. less and less after they first moved into the neighborhood. When they did see Leanne, often with Christopher in her arms, she did not stop to talk. While before they'd see her outside with the dogs or gardening, now she seemed to be shut away in the house. Even her family didn't hear from her very much anymore. The Paulson's phone had been disconnected, and Leanne's cell phone number was no longer in service. Abusers often seek to isolate their victims from family members, friends, or anyone else who may offer support or refuge. This is another way that the abuser exerts control over their partner. Leanne was also dependent on her husband for financial support at this time, and she may have felt trapped. After her husband was arrested in May, Leanne did leave for a time to stay with a friend in Nashville, but she returned to Indiana just a short time later. Before Paulson completed his diversion program in Indiana, he was once again arrested for domestic violence. In October, Leanne filed another report. J.J. had slapped her, and her face was red and swollen, according to the police report. However, Leanne declined to testify against her husband, and the charges were dropped. In November, Leanne was arrested for driving under the influence. Her blood alcohol level tested at three times the legal limit for driving. She was cited and released. Leanne's family last spoke with her on December 30th, 2006. On Friday, April 13th, J.J. Paulson called two friends to ask for financial assistance. Leanne needed to go to alcohol rehab, he told them. Her drinking had grown out of control, and he needed some help to reserve her a place at a rehab center in California. He also called Leanne's sisters and told them about her drinking problem. They could not get in touch with her and only spoke with J.J., who reported that Leanne didn't want to do anything except drink. 
He was trying to urge her to go to rehab, he told them. Her sisters couldn't believe Leanne could be so irresponsible, especially with an infant to care for. They told J.J. that they wanted to speak with her, but he continued to report that she would not speak to them. They became angry with her. During this time, Paulson went out to dinner with a friend. The friend picked Paulson up at home, and when he asked where his wife was, he answered that Leanne was asleep upstairs. Paulson was telling Leanne's family and other friends that she was scheduled to leave for California to check into the rehab center on April 17th. He asked her sister Sharon if he could borrow her car to take his wife to the airport. She agreed. But early on the morning of the 17th, he called Sharon to say that Leanne had decided not to go to California. Sharon was upset by this news and later emailed her brother-in-law to tell him that she was coming over to confront Leanne. Paulson then told her that Leanne had, in fact, already left for California. Leanne's family was tired of getting the runaround with all these conflicting reports and decided to do a little digging for information on their own. Another sister, Katie Serrano, called the Rehabilitation Center in California to ask whether Leanne was expected there and when. She was told that they were not expecting her. Katie then called JJ and told him what she had found out. He told her they were mistaken and that Leanne was on her way to the airport as they spoke. They no longer believed anything their brother-in-law was telling them and demanded to speak to Leanne. He just continued to insist that she was on her way to California. At this point, Leanne's sisters had not heard from her in over three months. Still feeling like they were getting the runaround from J.J., Sharon Deem and her sister Jerry, who also lived in Indiana, decided to go to the house and see what was up for themselves. They arrived at the Stag Hill Drive house on April 18th. They knocked on the door and called to Leanne and J.J., but no one answered. The house was locked tight. They then called the police to request a welfare check. Officer Curtis Scott of the Carmel Police Department arrived at about 3.30 p.m. Not getting any answer to his knock on the door, he made entry into the home. J.J. Paulson was not at home. However, the officer found 16-month-old Christopher alone in his crib. He was hungry and dehydrated and had been left alone inside the house. The house was a mess. Rotten food and trash were strewn throughout the home. The dogs had urinated and defecated on the floors, and it had not been cleaned up. The utilities in the house had been shut off. Scenes of a struggle were found inside the Paulson's master bedroom. The bed frame was broken, and there was a large hole in the wall. A small doorway inside the walk-in closet that led to the attic crawl space had been conspicuously obstructed. When they moved the object and opened the small door, they found the nude and partially mummified body of Leanne Serrano Paulson. Leanne Paulson had been found dead in her home. She had been concealed in the crawl space for some time, as evidenced by the condition of her body. Police quickly put out an all-points bulletin for James John Paulson. Within hours, he was found walking across an intersection about three miles away from his home. He was wearing two pairs of jeans, two shirts, a sweatshirt, a fleece vest, and an overcoat. He was carrying a backpack containing a cell phone, a knife, toiletries, vodka, and additional clothing. He immediately asked officers for an attorney. 
They told him he was not under arrest, but that his son had been placed in the custody of Child Protective Services. They did not mention the dead body. Paulson was taken to police headquarters to be questioned. He was read his Miranda rights before speaking with a CPS caseworker. He explained that he had left Christopher alone to look for Leanne. Police ran Paulson's record and found that he'd twice been arrested for domestic battery against Leanne and that he was still on probation. The following day, the body found in the Paulson home was positively identified as Leanne Paulson, age 39. The cause of death was determined to be subdural hemorrhage caused by blunt force trauma to the head from multiple punches or kicks. Her body was bruised extensively on her head, back, arms, and legs. In essence, she had been beaten to death. It was also found that two of her ribs had been broken post-mortem, indicating that she had continued to be beaten after her death, or perhaps as a result of the body having been moved, or when it was concealed in the crawl space. The time of death was the most shocking discovery. Leanne had been dead for two weeks to a month before her body was discovered, the medical examiner determined. She had been dead the entire time that Paulson was making phone calls, telling her friends and family that her drinking was out of control, that he was trying to get her into rehab, and that she had left for California. Her remains were in such a state of decomposition that she had to be identified through tattoos and dental records. It was also determined that Paulson had left the home several times, leaving Christopher alone. He was charged with a Class D felony neglect of a dependent, and Christopher was placed with Leanne's sister, Jerry, and her husband. On May 3, 2007, the state charged Paulson with murder. A year and a half later, after a lot of legal wrangling, he appeared before the court to plead guilty the state filed the additional charge of a Class D felony moving a body from the scene of death. The plea agreement allowed him to plead guilty to a Class B felony, voluntary manslaughter, rather than the more serious charge of murder. He'd already admitted that he'd killed Leanne on April 1, 2007, 17 days before her body was discovered. He kept it a secret from everyone for almost three weeks that Leanne was dead spreading the lie that she was drunk all the time and needed to be sent to rehab. He disparaged her character to family, friends, and acquaintances as a neglectful mother and a drunk. And all the time, she lay dead and decomposing in their walk-in closet crawl space. He was also found guilty of neglect of a dependent and moving a body from the scene of death. At the sentencing hearing in March 2009, Aggravating circumstances, including his prior history of assault against Leanne, his violation of probation on those charges, and the commission of a crime in the presence of a minor, were presented. Mitigating circumstances presented to the court were Paulson's acceptance of responsibility for the crime and his current expression of remorse. The court then sentenced Paulson to 20 years on the manslaughter charge, three years on the felony moving of a body charge, and three years for felony neglect of a dependent, for a total of 26 years. In 2010, Paulson appealed his sentence, arguing that the state improperly cited the aggravating circumstances at his sentencing. The court agreed that adding the aggravating circumstances of the violent nature of the crime was improper, but upheld the others and rejected his appeal. On September 12, 2016, only nine years after Leanne's murder, 
James John Paulson was released from the Miami Correctional Facility in Bunker Hill, Indiana. Although I tried to determine under what circumstances he was found eligible for release, I was unable to discover any official records. However, there might be a clue in a newspaper account I came across from the time Paulson was awaiting trial. It stated that if Paulson was charged with manslaughter, the maximum sentence he could receive would be 11 years. But at his sentencing, he was given 20 years for felony manslaughter. He served a total of nine years, including the time he spent in jail before his guilty plea and sentencing. Perhaps the court took time off for good behavior, etc., and decided he'd served enough time. Sadly, domestic violence and or intimate partner violence is sometimes still not considered as serious a crime as violence against a stranger, even when it results in murder. A person may get a lengthier sentence if they get into a bar fight that ends in death. The fact is, the court may have looked at J.J. Paulson as someone who was unlikely to reoffend, since he was educated, wealthy, and a minor celebrity. Paulson's plea agreement also stated that he committed the crime in the heat of anger and that it was not premeditated. Paulson's attorney told the court that, quote, it was just a household that was a very dangerous place for both of them because of their alcohol addictions and the things that go with that, unquote. But does Paulson's history of abuse against Leanne make him a potential danger to future partners? Only time will tell. Where he is now is unknown, although as a condition of his plea agreement, he was also prohibited from writing, producing, directing, or collaborating with anyone else in those activities to profit from his wife's death. One final item of note in this case. In 2010, the comedian and actress Margaret Cho was interviewed by Entertainment Weekly. J.J. Paulson had been a writer on her show, All-American Girl, in 1994. I fell in love with a guy who worked on All-American Girl, which was my first TV show, she told reporter Mandy Byerly, and he didn't like me back at all. It broke my heart. I was early 20s, really in love with him. I was in love with him for 17 years, and I never Googled him because in my mind I thought, I'm sure he's married with kids and living a fantastic life. Finally, 17 years later, I Googled him, and it said in 2007 he was arrested for murdering his wife. So I'm like shaking in front of my computer. But I loved this man for 17 years. Margaret Cho released a musical album in 2010. On it, she performs a song with Andrew Bird. It's sort of a country murder ballad, she explains. The song gives me a lot of comfort. Because how do you love someone who was capable of that, partially mummified, in the attic? I mean, I loved him. I don't know. I don't know how to deal with that. If you're thinking that Mr. Paulson pretty much got away with murdering his wife, then I'd have to agree. The next story is about another writer, this time from the Netherlands, who almost got away with the same crime. He was so cocky, thinking he'd outsmarted the authorities, that he made it a running joke and even turned it into a plot line for one of his novels. This is the case of the Dutch crime novelist turned murderer, Richard Klinkhammer. In the winter of 2000, a couple was doing some renovations on the garden of their home in Finsterwald in the Netherlands. They had purchased the house not long before, 
and decided to make a bigger play space behind the home for their two young children. They had an old garden tool shed knocked down and then dug up the concrete floor that laid beneath. Underneath the concrete was clay, and as they were digging in it, they uncovered a grisly find. A human jawbone was unearthed, and not long afterwards, a human skull. Work was halted, and the authorities were called. Slowly and carefully, more bones were removed from the small plot of land. An entire human skeleton was found. As soon as the discovery was made, detectives knew who they had probably found. Dental records were requested, and before long, they determined that the body buried below the tool shed was that of Hannelore Klinkhammer, who'd been missing for almost a decade. Once they identified the body, an arrest warrant was issued for 62-year-old Richard Klinkhammer, Hannelore's husband. Richard Klinkhammer had a hard scrabble past. Born in the Netherlands in 1937 to an Austrian-born mother, he witnessed horrific violence before he was even out of short pants. His aunt was gang-raped in front of him, and his uncle was murdered. His mother worked in prostitution and eventually took her own life. Richard, who throughout his childhood was bounced around to different foster homes, learned to support himself through petty crime. As a teen, he joined the French Foreign Legion to get off of the streets. By the mid-1970s, Klinkhammer was a twice-divorced father of three, working as a hotel clerk in Amsterdam, when he met Hannelore Godfrinen. Hannelore, or Hanny, as everyone called her, was ten years younger than Richard when they met. Hanny had also lived a life of tragedy and loss. In 1957, when she was just nine years old, Hanny discovered her mother dead at the bottom of the attic stairs. Hanny's father had thrown his 46-year-old wife down the stairs and then bludgeoned her with a hammer, killing her. Perhaps Richard and Hanny felt connected by the violence they'd both witnessed in their early lives. Whatever the reason, they felt an instant attraction and married in 1978. Hanny, a registered nurse, brought her new husband to the Dutch province of Finsterwold to start a new life together. Clean Comrade began writing a book about his time in the French Foreign Legion. His first book was titled Obedient as a Dog. In it, he described learning how to kill and dispose of a body. It was the first thing you learned as a legionnaire, he explained. The book was published and became a success. He then wrote a book of short stories titled Hotel Red. Klinkhammer began to earn a living with his writing, and at the same time began to play the stock market, while Hanny continued to work as a nurse. While all should have been well, Klinkhammer began to drink heavily. When he was drunk, he would sometimes hit his wife. Afterwards, Hanny would leave and stay with friends or relatives. Many recalled seeing bruises on her body. But Hanny was in love with Richard, and after a time would always return home. To outsiders, all seemed to be going well in the Klinkhammer's lives. Richard Klinkhammer was a successful writer and making a good living playing the stock market. He and Hanny liked to travel and socialize with neighbors, and the couple, for the most part, seemed happy together. Then in 1987, Klinkhammer lost her savings in the stock market crash. He began drinking heavily, and Hanny would show up more frequently to take refuge at her neighbor's, the Burkheimer's home. Janny Burkheimer was also Hanny's co-worker at the hospital. Janny would later tell People magazine, when Hanny had problems, she would come over here. She wouldn't speak about it, but she was afraid to leave Richard. 
Then on February 6, 1991, Klinkhammer reported his wife missing. He said that he'd found her bicycle at a nearby train station, but that she had not returned home. Many of the neighbors, knowing of Klinkhammer's abuse towards his wife, were immediately suspicious and reported this to police. An investigation was opened into her disappearance. At first, Yanni Burkheimer hoped that Hanny had finally had enough and left her husband. But her hope soon turned to fear when there was no note or call from her friend in the following days and weeks. She would not have left without letting someone know she was okay, nor would she have left her job without notice, Janney said. Finally, she was suspicious of Richard because he did not look for her, Janney remembered. Two months later, with still no sign of Hanny, Klinkhammer was detained for four days on suspicion of guilt, while police conducted an extensive search of their home and grounds. They used search dogs and even flew above the grounds with military aircraft that was equipped with infrared scanners to search for traces of human remains. Nothing was found, and they had no choice but to release their suspect. Klinkhammer continued living at the Finsterwald house, and Hanny's disappearance and the suspicions against her husband might have faded away over time if it weren't for Klinkhammer himself. Two years after his wife's disappearance, Klinkhammer presented a new manuscript to his publisher, Willem Donker. The book's Dutch title loosely translates in English to Ground Meat Wednesday. It was a fictionalized account of how he could have conceivably murdered his wife. The book plots seven different ways he may have murdered Hannelore and gotten away with it. This brings to mind the O.J. Simpson fictionalized account of his wife Nicole Brown's murder, titled If I Did It. In one scenario in Klinkhammer's book, after he kills his wife, he disposes of the body by putting it through a meat grinder and then feeding it to the pigeons. The book was rejected by the publisher who decided it was too gruesome. But Donker suggested that Klinkhammer take two chapters of the book and turn it into a crime novel. He did and titled the book Ransom. The book was a modest success. After reading the manuscript for Ground Meat Wednesday, Donker suspected that Klinkhammer may have actually killed his wife and asked him point-blank if he had. It's not yet the time to talk about it, he answered mysteriously. Klinkhammer continued to drop hints that perhaps he had murdered Hanalore. He once commented, Everyone is able to murder someone, somewhere, suddenly. In 1996, as soon as it was legally allowed, Klinghammer had his wife officially declared deceased. He was then able to sell the home, which had been purchased in Hanny's name. He also was able to draw a widower's pension. After selling the house, he moved to Amsterdam. In 1997, 60-year-old Richard Klinghammer began a relationship with 24-year-old Marguerite de Heer, a student of theology. Marguerite was a fan of Klinghammer's books and set out to meet him. They fell in love. Later, he would give her a copy of Ground Meat Wednesday, and after reading it, she would conclude that he probably was involved in Hanny's disappearance. She put her suspicions aside for a time, but then later asked him to please lie to her and tell her that he had not hurt his wife. He did not answer her. Then, as the author of several books, and still in the public's mind a suspect in his wife's disappearance, Richard Klinkhammer became a minor celebrity in the Netherlands. He gave television and radio interviews and appeared on talk shows. 
he continued to drop hints about his involvement in Hanny's disappearance. In 1994, a television interviewer bluntly asked him, Did you kill your wife? Klinghammer answered, It could be. The villagers say I cut her into pieces or put her in the pond. Back in Finsterwold, the new homeowners had inadvertently, after nine years of speculation, discovered the truth. On February 3, 2000, almost exactly nine years after Hanny went missing, Richard Klinghammer was sitting down to dinner when he heard a knock at his door. The police were there with an arrest warrant for the murder of Hannelore Klinghammer. Soon after his arrest, Klinghammer must have figured out the jig was up because he quickly confessed to the murder. In the weeks before his wife's death, he said he'd been drinking heavily. On January 31, 1991, in a drunken rage, he beat her to death with a wooden bat or handle. He then dug a hole in the floor of the tool shed where he placed her body and then covered it over with concrete. A week later, he reported her missing. Hanny was just 43 years old, three years younger than her mother was, when she was murdered by her husband. It was an eerie and tragic legacy. After a seven-week psychological evaluation, Klinkhammer was declared competent to stand trial. Without any evidence of premeditation, he was charged with manslaughter and pled guilty. He was sentenced to seven years in prison. His girlfriend, Marguerite, continued to support him, and her mother, who was a Protestant minister, also visited him several times. He told Marguerite he was working on rewriting Ground Meat Wednesday while in prison to honor his late wife. His publisher, Donker, sent word to Klinkhammer that he would now consider publishing the book. Klinkhammer declined. He was released for good behavior after only two years behind bars. He returned to Amsterdam, where he lived for the next 13 years. He died in 2016 of natural causes at the age of 78. There were those who thought it too much of a coincidence that a crime novelist killed his wife and then wrote about it without it being a planned strategy all along. Did Richard Klinkhammer plan and execute an almost perfect crime as research for his novel? Those that knew him and Hanny think it unlikely. He loved his wife, they say, but he was also a violent drunk. His drinking had increased over time, and they speculate that during a drunken rage, he killed Hanny accidentally. He then panicked and hid her body. But then what were all the hints and comments about his possible involvement he liked to joke about? Perhaps that was his guilty conscience, they speculate. He was also always drawn to dark subjects like death and murder. They were common themes in his novels, and subjects he'd been familiar with since he was a young boy. But some still find it creepy after the fact, knowing that he was, in actuality, a murderer. Once while working in his garden in Amsterdam, Klinkhammer joked that the hole he was digging was, quote, big enough to hide a body. A journalist spent the afternoon interviewing him at his home and left convinced he'd just passed the time with a killer. He made a lot of jokes about dark things. Death. It was spooky, the journalist wrote. One more observation. Had Hanny's body not been discovered for another nine years, Klinkhammer could not have been prosecuted for her murder. The Dutch courts have a statute of limitations on murder. If he'd stayed living in his home and the shed had not been torn down, he may have been home free. 
I kind of think he had to flee from the scene of his crime. Like in Poe's classic novel about a murderer's guilty conscience, The Telltale Heart, Klinkhammer may have been haunted by his dark deed. When describing his wife's murder during his confession, Klinkhammer said, She was yelling, screaming, never stop screaming. It's haunting me still. Hanny continued to accuse him from the grave. Or maybe that's just all in a writer's imagination. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please reach out for help. There is hope. In the U.S., you can find help and resources online at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233. In the U.K., go to nationaldomestic-violence-helpline.org.uk or call 0808-2000-247. In Australia, go to 1-800-RESPECT.ORG.AU or call 1-800-737-732. I'll be back next week with another chapter of Written in Blood. The next one is a real shocker. I can't wait to share it with you. You're going to say, Don't forget to check the show notes for resources, social media links, and links to our sponsor's special offers. Thanks once again to my copy editor, Crystal Dernan, for her help in producing this episode. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.